First things first, I need to thank a couple of people, actually three, two of them, the first couple is my parents, they're here somewhere, there they are, they're sitting right here in the middle, I'm not sure why your grandchildren aren't sitting with you, but I'm really sorry about that, um, that was not the plan, I'm thankful you're here. I'm also thankful for uh, Lisa Ryber this morning, she has bestowed the green and the gold upon her uh, in honor of Jill's job and where I'll be living, I suppose. Um, I also want to be thankful for our oldest son. He has two finals, one yesterday and one tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., and he chose the higher priority of being ready for that final rather than driving all this way and then driving immediately back. So I am thankful that he is choosing to spend uh, our money wisely uh, in that way. So we are thankful for a lot of things. Now, the last thing I want to be thankful for is for all of you, because we're going to have to do this together. I'm not sure whose idea it was for me to preach on our last Sunday here. Uh, so I need your help in lots and lots of different ways, um, if you can be praying and helping along as we go. Laugh whenever you feel like it, whether it's supposed to be happening or not. That would be of much appreciation. As we get started, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, and then I just want you to put something there. We're going to come back to it eventually, but I want you to be ready. So Isaiah chapter 40, stick a mark in there and then close it. And we'll come back to it, I promise. I just don't want to waste our time later. I'm sure that this week you saw, along with me, all of the pictures of Texas enjoying a little bit of cold and a whole lot of white stuff. Central Texas actually closed some of their schools, I'm assuming, just so that some of those folks can come to grips with what that white powdery substance is and the fun that you can have with it. And as we were receiving messages and seeing pictures being shared all over the world because of that snow, it reminded me of a Christmas Eve that happened just a few short years ago when we lived in Houston. As we were approaching Christmas, our then three-year-old Caden, who turns 18 next month, by the way, he declared that it was going to snow for Christmas in Houston, the armpit of the world. It doesn't snow in Houston. We all looked at him as if he were just a little more than crazy, but he didn't care. He was three, and he knew it was going to snow, and the reason he knew that it was going to snow is because he had been praying that it would snow for Christmas. And after he told us that, Jill and I looked at each other, and we kind of shrugged, maybe, maybe this is the year. It's going to happen. So as we were driving to our Christmas Eve service a few weeks later, Caden asked us if we were ready. Are you ready for the snow, Mom? Are you ready for the snow, Dad? And we just kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, sure, knowing full well that there had been nothing on the weather showing any kind of precipitation whatsoever. There was no sign of anything, but he was hopeful, and after all, he had been praying that snow would come for Christmas. So as the service was happening, I did my part of the service, and then I went and sat in the pew with my family, and I began to think how incredible it would be for there to be snow on Christmas Eve for this little guy. And so I began, I don't know if you did, Jill, or not, I began to pray for a little bit of snow that night just so Caden could know something like that. Caden had a look on his face in the meantime like he knew the secret that no one else in the room knew. Toward the end of the service, as happens in a lot of Christmas Eve services, we lit candles, and everyone processed out the back of the sanctuary. The whole sanctuary empties out back through the narthex down the stairs, just like our stairs out back here. 
gather around some green space and we sing Silent Night outside. And you, can know, you, you know what I'm about to tell you, but as we opened the back doors of the sanctuary, there was snow. And as each group of people, you know, as you go up the aisles and then you kind of spread out a little bit to multiple doors, as each group got to the doors and they saw it, you could hear the, the wows. You could hear what was going on. I was at the very back of that whole line, so I wasn't quite sure what was going on until I got there. This was the good kind of snow. This was the big, fluffy, stick-to-everything-put-it-in-your-mouth-and-enjoy-it kind of snow. These people didn't know what to do with themselves. We were really starting to enjoy it, and Caden grabbed my hand. He's a little guy playing in the snow at this point. Grabbed my hand and leaned down, and he kind of motioned to me, and he said, Told you so. Told you so. It was at this point that I decided that Caden was always going to be right. That's gotten me in trouble a few times. That's gotten him in trouble a few times. But we're always going to assume that Caden is right. Now, when we left church that night, we had to drive south to get to our house, south of Houston, and the snow got heavier and heavier and thicker and thicker the further south we went to the point where we had to almost pull off the side of the road because it just didn't make sense to go any further. But we did. We inched our way home when we got there. We decided then and there we were going to have to find our gloves and hats and coats somewhere because in Houston you don't know where those are for sure. And we're going to go play in the snow before it disappears because we knew it wasn't going to last long. So at midnight we were making snowmen. Little, big, medium, on the backs of cars, on sidewalks, on the trees, everything we could find. And we just started throwing things at each other. It was amazing. Christmas Day, sure enough, all that was left was the little bit along the curb and the tree. But it had been enough. This little guy had looked toward Christmas with expectation, with hope. He looked forward to Christmas morning expecting that it would be so. And lo and behold, it was. We are all on a journey through Advent this year, seeing the ways that God is among us. Last week, we talked about shalom, the peace of God among us. Today, we're going to take just a few minutes and think through the hope of God among us. That is our hope, that God will indeed be among us. Advent literally means the coming don't know if you knew that. And it's the time when we wait expectantly. Like Mary, we wait for the Christ child, what God has already done. And we wait for what is yet to come. For the coming of the kingdom of heaven to earth, for Christ to return. This, though, is not passive waiting. This is active waiting. Ask any expectant mother... They know that this kind of waiting involves preparation. It involves nutrition and work and exercise and prayer. I believe that we are in a world that is pregnant with hope. As we wait, we work, we cry, we pray, we ache for God's kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. For this is Advent. Just a few moments ago, we read the Christmas story according to John. 
It's a little bit different than our other Gospels, especially the most familiar second chapter of Luke. Matthew and Luke both give us narratives so that we can imagine in our mind's eye what might be happening. With Matthew and Luke, we can visualize Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, the baby in the manger with all of the animals nearby. We can imagine the sheep and the shepherds and the wise men with their gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. But we can't visualize John's Christmas story. No, no painter is lining up to paint John's Christmas story. There just are not those kind of images. In John's Gospel, we may notice that John doesn't spend any time dealing with angels or shepherds or a young mother or the magi. Matter of fact, it's hardly about the birth of Jesus at all. Except that it is. There's only two verses really in that first few verses of John chapter 1 that point toward incarnation, God being with us. The first verse of John, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then you skip all the way to verse 14. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word, that same Word that was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as the message, one of my favorite translations translates it, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that imagery. Moved into the neighborhood. Now one of the things that the Hebrew, or sorry, the Greek does for us in this passage is take a noun and form a verb out of it. The word used there is the word used for tabernacle. Do you remember in the Old Testament, do you remember your Old Testament stories about the tabernacle? It was the physical presence of God. And so if you take the Greek and you work through it, you can translate this, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacle becomes a verb. Tabernacled among us, meaning that the physical presence of God is among us. And there it is. That's John's Christmas story. Not a whole lot of painting to do there if you were searching for a scene to paint. Yet John does something more than just tell us about the birth of Christ. It's also about what John does between verse 1 and verse 14. We're in such a hurry to see this incarnation that we miss what John presents between those two verses. He is less concerned about the birth of a baby than he is about our rebirth as children of God. Hear these words from verse 10 through verse 13 of John chapter 1. He was in the world and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Did you catch that? Jesus came that we might become children of God. And that's where we find hope. Rather than being defined by things like our experiences, both the good and the bad, our marital status, our past triumphs or defeats, our successes or our failures, what if we were defined instead by the words that John uses here? 
that God has called us God's own children, people who hold infinite worth in the eyes of God. This is a difficult distinction for many of us because we like to define ourselves, don't we, by what we do, who we have been, rather than through the hope that we have in who God has called us to be. God is among us, giving us this hope that we can be defined not by what describes us, but by what God is continuing to do in us. For me, me, this means that hope is not just about future, it's also about now. One of the things that I'm discovering as I'm on the search for work in Central Texas is that I have found much of my identity in what I do rather than who I am because of this hope. For 25 years, I've served in local church in some capacity. And as we complete our move south this week, it looks like that's not going to be an option. Now, I am both excited and fearful slash have heart palpitations about all of that as I jump out in complete faith knowing that God is in the midst of all of this. As I have been able to learn things about myself in this process, I'm discovering how much emphasis I put on what I do rather than who I am. I'm learning that for to us to understand and grasp the fact that we have been reborn with the power of God, we have to let go of some of this ego, don't we? We must remember that true hope is found not in the things that describe us, but in the God who came to earth as flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood and defines us as children of God. God came to earth as a human and walked among us, as John says, with grace and truth, the very definition of incarnation. But I also think that incarnation means that all ground is holy ground. Do you remember the story from Exodus 3 when Moses steps to the bush that is burning but is not being consumed? It was there where God told Moses to take his sandals off because he was standing on holy ground. Because of the incarnation, we know that God not only made the ground, but walked on it, ate and slept and worked and died on it. All ground is holy ground. As we are going through life these next few weeks, as we're shopping for gifts, as we're making some decisions on where we will spend Christmas and with whom we will spend Christmas, I wonder if we can also be mindful of where we are walking, holy ground. This hope that we have, who is Christ Himself, has shown us that all ground is indeed holy. And wherever we are, this hope is truly among us, with us. Did you put a mark in Isaiah chapter 40? Now's the time. The first five verses we'll read together. But I want you to know that this passage was written to a people who had been in exile for some time. 
people who had been taken away from their home, from everything familiar. And the prophet here is telling them that their exile is nearly over. Hear these words, knowing that story behind. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in the first verse. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Said to a people who have been in exile. With expectation, just like those who were coming out of exile back to their homeland, we all hear the words, comfort, O oh comfort, my people. Knowing that the Christ child is nearly here. Perhaps you feel as though you have been in exile recently. Perhaps you have fell out of touch with hope. As I read these words from Isaiah, I read that even as we sense that we are in exile, we are called to prepare the way of the Lord. During Advent, because of the words of God, comfort, O oh comfort my people. How are you preparing this year for the hope that is the Christ child. As our family enters into this next place during this season of Advent, I think about a particular Old Testament story. I think about Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis chapter 12 when God asks them to go forth. The traditional Jewish understanding of these two words is that it's more than just about switching location. These words are a reminder that our journey, these words go forth, are a reminder that our journey is simultaneously outward, where and how we move through the world while also being inward, who we are becoming during the journey. Why do I tell you this? I came across this reading in a Jewish prayer book not long ago. And it speaks for where our family, the Hatcher family, is now as we complete Advent in another location. Hear these words coming from that Jewish prayer book. Once or twice in a lifetime, a man or woman may choose a radical leaving, having heard, go forth. God disturbs us toward our destiny by hard events. And by freedom's now urgent voice, which explodes and confirms who we are. We don't like leaving, but God loves the becoming. No matter where each of us find ourselves this Advent season, let us be about becoming more and more of who God is calling us to be. Because of what God has done in Christ, our hope among us. In this way, I believe that the hope of God will truly be 
among us. Can we pray together?